In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear faithful, today's Feast of the Holy Family and next week's second Sunday after Epiphany, where we have the Gospel of the Wedding Feast of Cana, are the two most likely weeks for the faithful of Holy Cross Seminary to hear a sermon about marriage and the family life. And it's almost like the liturgical season has specifically arranged itself for our benefit here at uh, the seminary because we have these two Sundays arrive at a time when the seminarians are not here. And so it's very convenient for priests to speak about family matters. And it definitely is one of the duties of a priest to try to give some guidance to married couples and families. And I think receiving this guidance is an important part of a Catholic couple's life. Everyone who comes to to Mass as a Catholic calls the priest a father. And in part of being a father is precisely to provide advice and counsel. We know uh, that the world does not think that the priest is really in any position to give counsel on uh, matters of marriage. How, they say, can someone who is not married and who does not have a family uh, give advice about being married and having a family? This is a common sort of objection. They do not seem to notice that that they, in fact, themselves do not require of their marriage counselors that that they be married or of their, their daycare matrons that they themselves had children. But regardless, um, their perspective on marriage tends to reduce marriage to purely its material side, um, the question of living in a home, the question of paying bills, fixing meals, and so on. They, they tend to think of family affairs solely in terms of economics and sexuality. And for that reason, they find the priest completely unqualified to say anything about marriage and family. But if the Catholic faithful come to um, the priest um, for advice about marriage, it's it's certainly not because they want to ask advice on how to cook a meal or or how to pay bills. I mean, that's definitely not the point. Certainly, I'm the last person to be, to be asked about such things. If, if they speak to a priest, it's because they expect the priest to know something about the practice of virtue. It's because they want to have a holy family. And precisely because the priest is someone who has separated himself from the world, who has taken the vow of chastity, and has dedicated his life to the pursuit of holy things, they expect him to have a greater knowledge about that aspect of their married life, which is in fact the the most important aspect. Your family is successful to the degree that it is holy. So that's why you go to a priest um, and you confide in the priest and you ask the priest about things that concern the sanctification of your family. And it really is a wonderful thing when couples have a sufficient confidence and trust in the priest that they're able to go to him with whatever troubles or big decisions uh, they might be milling about in their mind. Sometimes this can take place uh, during retreat or in the context of a confession. Sometimes a couple themselves together will come and, and have a visit with the priest. Of course, couples do not have a strict moral obligation to follow the advice of the priest. The priest um, is not in a position to command 
and say, you must do this or you must do that. He simply recommends. He says, as far as I see things, this is the best advice that I can give you. But it's already good, especially if a couple is experiencing difficulties, for them to receive an outside an opinion, and an opinion that does not come from a secular perspective. You think how uh, cheap advice is and how everybody wants to advise you about everything today. Everybody um, has some advice, and most of the advice that you will receive concerning marriage, you will receive from the secular world, and typically it's not going to be very good advice. None of these people would have the highest interest of your marriage in view when they give this advice. As far as a priest is concerned, he's not really able to help unless he is approached by the faithful. Even if he notices there might be some difficulties, he will not intervene on his own because it would be indiscreet on his part. So that's why it is good for the faithful in general to be straightforward with the priests and unburdening their souls in in the various contexts of, of the priest's spiritual ministry. And precisely by doing so, they enable the priest to be a father to them. They enable the priest to exercise the ministry for which he was ordained. The priest wants to be able to help souls and lead them to holiness, but the souls have to approach him for him to be able to do that. And as far as marriage goes, it's quite often the women much more the, than the men who are likely to ask advice um, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that women are much more likely to notice problems and be worried about problems and be willing to speak about problems than the men are. Men, generally speaking, tend not to, to see problems, and if they see them, they tend not to want to speak about them. And that, that makes it... Uh, difficult for them to approach the priest. If the wife says to the husband, Honey, our house is on fire. The husband will say, No, it's not. It's just one wall that's on fire. Not the whole house. And in other words, you know, it's not a big deal. I'll get to it later. I'll take care of it. But it is important that men find a way to speak of their difficulties if they're having any difficulties. None of us in this life is an island uh, such that we're able to deal with everything on our own. We priests ourselves. We have confessors, and we are constantly consulting with one another about different things that come up in our priestly ministry. And this is so necessary. Um, it's disastrous for a priest to be totally on his own and have to live according to his own lights, live his whole priesthood according to his own lights. And when we see a priest who, who becomes withdrawn into himself, we, we see it as a bad sign. And we try to find a way for him to be able to open himself up for, to a, a fellow priest and unburden himself. At the end of the day, secrecy is a great tool of the devil. That being said, I would like to bring up one of the most common problems that couples seem to experience and a proper supernatural perspective on this problem. And please, in, in bringing this up, I'm just speaking completely in general. Um, from my 12 years of experience as a priest, I cannot say to, to what degree what I say may or may not apply to the people in this room. But generally speaking, from, from my own experience, um, what, what can happen is, is the typical... Um, marriage story where you have 
boy meets girl, uh, boy and girl fall in love. Um, they have a true and real affection for one another at the moment of their marriage, but still um, they, their relationship needs to be deepened over time. They, they need to have this experience of their married life in order to get to know one another more completely. So they get married and they begin to live their married life together. Uh, slowly but surely, the, the sort of aura of the honeymoon wears down and they settle down to getting to know one another at a deep and profound level. And what they find is all of the good sides and all the bad sides of their spouse. Um, turns out the husband is not exactly like our Lord and the wife is not exactly like our lady. So far, so good. This is perfectly normal. And if there is a marriage where that is not the case, I want to know about it. And we can write, we can write down that story. Um, so when this happens, spouses that love one another, they want their mutual holiness. And of course, um, they realize that the holiness of, of one another is going to determine the holiness of their family. Their family is going to be holy precisely to the degree that the two spouses, the husband and wife, are holy. And so, um, in the best of marriages, the husband and the wife mutually assist one another to grow in holiness over the course of their married life. They grow holier and holier through their mutual company, their mutual support. That's how marriage is supposed to work. And so when a loving husband or a wife notices habitual faults in the other, they want to help the spouse overcome the faults. And this is a good and right and appropriate thing. Um, but doing that is, in the end, very delicate. And it's extremely important for spouses to be careful about how they go about this attempt to, to lead their spouse to holiness. There's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Really, the right way is indicated at the beginning of the epistle today, where St. Paul lists all these virtues for good family living. Um, let, me, let me just read through that quickly again. So he says, Put on holy and beloved heart of mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another if anyone has a grievance against any other. But above all these things, have charity. So these are the key virtues in, in a husband leading a wife to more virtue and a wife leading a husband to more virtue. Patience, humility, meekness, charity. So the right way is to be patient. The wrong way is to be impatient. The right way is to try to find the best way to encourage the spouse rather than to force the spouse to change. The wrong way is to think, for the spouse to think that they have the power and the duty to change their spouse and they have to change by Wednesday or else. That they can actually uh, force the spouse to change and they must accomplish it. This perspective has two difficulties about it. The first problem is it is um, a bit of an illusion. In the end of the day, we don't have the power to change anybody 
as, as human beings. And this is very important for us to recognize. It's very important for me as a priest to recognize that I do not have the power to change you. I have the power in the confessional or in the pulpit to suggest, to dispose you for change, to advise you as to what you should do, the changes you should make. But I can't change you. I can't do that. Um, And if I thought that I could do that, I would be setting myself up for a huge disappointment. I would, uh, for instance, uh, preach and proclaim the need to do this or that, and then I would observe it's not happening. I would say to everybody, perhaps, uh, everybody needs to come to Mass on time, on Sundays. We'll stop. You've got it. This is absolutely necessary. You've, you've got to come to Mass on time every Sunday. I can preach ten sermons in a row on arriving on Mass in time, but in the end, there will probably always be some parishioners who are going to rock up late for Mass. Always. And if I, if I had this impression that, that I could accomplish this, um, I would be sorely disappointed. And what I would have to do is realize there are really only two people who can change you. Yourself and God. Those are, those are the only two. And what can happen in marriage is that one spouse believes that he or she has the power and the duty to change the other, and then they become disenchanted when the spouse does not change. They've been married for a decade, two decades, five decades. Everything has been tried. And the result of all their efforts is their spouse does exactly the same thing they've always done. What happens is a certain seed of bitterness starts to spring up in the heart of the spouse that has this impression that they're able to change the other. He or she begins to despise the other, to become annoyed at everything the other does, all because of this expectation that in justice, the spouse should have changed by now and did not. And this creates a great uh, happiness, unhappiness amongst the spouses and the marriage starts to crack. A, a second difficulty when a husband or wife thinks that they're able to, to change their spouse and enforce a change is that, that they start to use more and more aggressive tactics over time Usually things start off fine in the way that they should. The the couple has a frank and, uh, we may say, adult conversation. They they discuss the problem in a calm and rational manner. And this is such an important skill of a married couple, that they're able to have this sort of adult discussion about one another and about how their marriage is going. Um, And it's a wonderful thing when couples are, are able to do this. It's, it's a very good sign of the health of their marriage. I just have a, I have a calm discussion about their marriage, about one another. Um, and this discussion of a problem is, is disposing the way for a change. Of course, it does not and cannot make the change, because remember, only God or the, or the person can change themselves. Um, but... It paves the way, and it, and it certainly breaks down barriers for that. But then perhaps after these discussions, uh, nothing happens, time goes on, there's perhaps a patient bearing of the fault, perhaps there's further discussions, perhaps there's the setting of a good example, 
but nothing happens. In the end, no change is made. And uh, the, the, the correcting spouse becomes, become, begins to be desperate with the spouse to be corrected and worried that, in fact, the spouse may never, ever change. And we know that sometimes this happens. Sometimes people have habits that last their whole life long, and they never change. And they may decide at that point, it is time to use greater force. The force may take the the form of coercive measures, um, trying to hit the other where it hurts, try to punish them, what have you. Um, This can work and, and does work with the children, but it rarely works or is fruitful for the spouses. It often rather makes things worse. Um, forms of punishment might, might be, for instance, the giving of silent treatment. Sometimes one spouse can sort of manufacture um, a certain uh, moping mood in order to indicate to the other spouse that this is the way I'm going to act unless you change in the way that I want you to change. I'm, I'm going to be mopey on a regular basis. A more common method is that of yelling. Um, yelling at the, at the children scares them, makes them do what you want, and so we will yell at our spouses. We know that this is all too common in, in families around the world to, to hear the, the, the voices of, of, the, of the spouses shouting at one another. No one likes to be yelled at, we know that, and so when we yell at one another, we do it in order to try to force them to change. A third form of, of sort of aggressive um, attempt to change the other is the strike. And this is when the upset spouse will decide that they will stop um, doing some of their, their marital duties in order to try to force the other uh, spouse to change. So each of these things is a, is a form of violent coercion and is, can be a sign of a degeneration of the spousal relationship. It, to, to go back to my example of the priest trying to force um, the faithful to, to show up for time on, on Mass, um, it would be like when I notice that people, over time, after my ten sermons on coming to Mass on time, um, it would be like me saying, uh, deciding to use more, stronger methods than the ones that I had used before. For instance, I could start yelling at them and threatening them from the pulpit. You know, if you don't come to Mass on time, I'm going to do this or that. Or how can you, how can you do this, you know, not come to Mass on time? Um, or I could declare that there's going to be no more confessions until the faithful come to Mass on time. Um, I could say, look, I'm not going to come out after Mass and talk to you anymore until everybody comes to Mass on time. I do know the story of a priest who eventually got to the point where he would actually lock and bar the doors at the time Mass started. And people would be there at the doors. They would be knocking on the door saying, let me in, I want to come to Mass. They would say, no, you're too late. You've You've come at the wrong time. So this would be the wrong way for, for the priest to, to deal with people coming in late uh, for Mass, and it's also the wrong way for, for spouses to bear with the, the faults of their spouse. Um, coming from this impatient 
that the spouse is not changing over time. And it is um, important in, in such cases where, where the, the, there is no change over a period of time, the fault-noticing spouse bear patiently with the fault-committing spouse and continue to perform all the duties of marriage before God as best as possible. And that's certainly what you want of me as a priest. You know, if I become disappointed at you, uh, because perhaps my, my sermons are not having an effect or, or the retreats that we are giving are not having an effect or the confessions are not having an effect. You certainly want me to keep trying as, as hard as I can by performing all of my priestly duties as best I can in order to continue to, to touch you. But more profoundly, I, I think that in the general vision of, of marriage, what marriage couples must understand that if precisely they want a holy family and they want to become holy as married couples, this is precisely the spot, the the primary area wherein they sanctify themselves in bearing with the faults of one another. The graces of marriage are even primarily given to you to enable you to bear the crosses of your marriage and resemble our Lord in them. In other words, God has designed marriage in his infinite wisdom, and he's made it a communal life where two live with one another for their whole life. And he knew that there would, have, there would be trials, that these trials would come from the, the, the various faults of, of the two spouses, and Precisely that communal life would provide the spouses an opportunity to practice these virtues that St. Paul speaks about. Patience, humility, meekness, charity. And that if, if they remained a bachelor or a bachelorette for their whole life, they would not have the opportunity to practice those virtues. They would not, have, they would not experience these difficulties. They, they would not have this occasion to... Um, Go through the trials of communal life, practice patience, and grow in holiness in that way. Your time to shine most as a Catholic spouse is when you bear patiently with the faults of your spouse, when you do your duty, even when your spouse is not pulling their weight, when, when your patience and understanding, waiting for God to do the changing of your spouse, and being willing to continue in that same routine until that day comes, if it ever comes, if the spouse is ever able to change. As you know, there's, there's a woman on the universal calendar of the church whom we particularly celebrate in this regard. There are others. There are other men and women who are exemplars of, of living the married life. This woman is most famous, and that is St. Monica. Her husband, Patricius, was, was a pagan with a violent temper, and someone who was unfaithful to St. Monica. And to add to the problems that St. Monica experienced in her her marriage, there was this omnipresent mother-in-law who was always taking the the side of her son and um, saw him to be the paragon of virtue and Monica to be in the wrong. But if there was anyone who was patient, willing to wait for God to change things, it was St. Monica. This is her primary claim to fame, as it were, among all the canonized saints. Her patience in bearing with 
the faults of her husband and her son. The trials that she experienced were, were really incredible. Um, she was extremely patient, as I say. She was willing to wait for God to change things. And she was so holy in her prayers and her almdies and her patience that even her pagan husband held her in a certain reverence. She had three children, but Patricius would not allow them to be baptized. And when her son, Augustine, became gravely ill, she begged her husband, please let me baptize my son before he dies. And Patricius said, okay, all right, I'll let you do it. But then he got better. And he said, I take it back. You can't baptize him now because he's recovered his health. Um, of course, St. Monica did not know the future. And this is something we have to consider in, in her trials. She did not know what was going to happen. She did not know how long it would take to, to bear patiently with her husband, how long it would take to bear patiently with her son, Augustine. But she persevered. She did not threaten her husband to leave him. She did not fall into a rage over his debauchery. She prayed and she waited for the time of God. And in the end, we know that it was St. Monica who won, who, who gained the victory. Her husband did become a Christian at the end of his life. And that was already a great testimony to her, her power of, of patient prayer and perseverance. For her son, Augustine, it took 17 years of waiting, praying, and even pursuing him. Um, her husband had died, and she just sort of chased her son all over Italy, uh, following him wherever he went and giving him a good example until he did convert. And shortly after his conversion, it's just six months after his conversion, um, she herself died. And he writes beautifully about uh, a tribute to his mother and his, his confessions. So this is the example that the church proposes um, to uh, the spouses for, for changing their spouses. You pray, you practice virtue, you do your, your marital duties to the best of your ability, and you let God do the rest. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.